When I was a little kid in the heat of the summer, sometimes my mom would come home with lemons, make lemonade. She'd start by taking the lemonade, soften them up, so she'd press them on the counter and roll them around back and forth on that counter for quite a while. And all that lemon oil would get all over the counter and all over her hands and the whole place smelled real good like lemons. And once she had them soften up, she'd cut them in half and start squeezing them on the juicer. And we'd always stand around because then she'd take those halves and cut them into little pieces. And the kids would grab them after she was done with them. And then you'd bite that lemon. And I don't know if you've ever bitten a lemon, but it'll just pucker up your whole face almost till it disappears. And every time you bite it, it just goes like that. You can hardly, and we'd be, we'd be eating away on those things till you just bug get sick, you know, just eating these little pieces of what I guess would other go, otherwise go out for the chickens or something. But you eat that lemon, by the time you're done, you're all covered with lemon juice all over the place, and the, 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 with the sourness, your, your spit would be running so, so bad you could hardly, uh, believe it. Anyway, later on when mom would, uh, finally make some, give us a glass of lemonade, the sweetness sounds shocking. But just talking about lemons, and if when I was a pulp, if I was a, a poet enough, I, if I kept talking about lemons, anybody here that's ever bitten lemons or eaten a fresh lemon, their saliva would start running. Father, why are you talking about lemons and lemonade? For that very reason, to try to make somebody's mouth water. Why? To make sure that no one here ever forgets this very important principle. An appetite is moved by the presence of its object. An appetite is moved by the presence of its object. Okay, Father, so what does that mean when you say an appetite is moved by the presence of an object? Well, the kind of appetites, the specific kind of appetites we're talking about today, the kind of appetites that make us salivate if we think enough about biting lemon slices or something real sour or something like that, those kind of appetites have another name. They're also known as passions. Okay, passions or appetites are only found in beings with senses. That includes all the creatures with sensitive souls, like the animals, dogs, cats, horses, water buffaloes, and all the creatures with a rational soul. That includes men. So every living being which has senses has appetites or passions, both the animals and men. They're not exactly the same. They're rough equivalents between animal and man because of reason. We'll see why in just a minute. But what's an appetite? An appetite is a power that causes a response to a sensory object. It's a power that produces a response to a sensed object. For the sake of time, we'll just note that at the most very basic level, the appetites produce two basic responses. The first basic response is they sense something. They say, this is good. Little boy sees lemon slices. There's a response. His mouth starts watering. The second basic response is, this is bad. Little boy sees mom coming with the willow switch to whip him for disobedience. Response is fear. Okay? So, two basic responses, appetites are, this is good, and the creature moves towards it, or this is bad, and there's a movement away. That's how the appetites work in response to a sensory object. So, appetites are the passions or powers that are activated by sensory information. Someone tells me about lemonade, my appetites respond to that information, and my saliva starts running. Okay. Another important thing to notice is the passions of the appetites move on their own without waiting for or needing the direction of reason. It isn't bad 
But that doesn't mean our reason doesn't have something to say about appetites either. Our appetite does its job by moving us towards some object, this is good, or moving us away from some object, this is bad. Remember that an appetite is moved by the presence of its object. So our appetite does its job by moving us towards a good object or moving us away from a bad object. But our reason does its job by making sure that that movement is reasonable. Now, what do you mean? Okay, review that idea and then we'll talk about what we mean. An appetite's moved by the presence of an object. Appetite does its job by moving us towards some object that, it's perceived, that seems good or away from some object that seems bad. The reason does its job by saying, is this movement reasonable? Dr. Dennis McInerney uses an example of a man who sees a delicious-looking piece of frosted cake. And when he sees that piece of cake, he wants it. Why? Because the appetite's moved by the presence of an object. An appetite is good in itself. That piece of cake is good in itself. So his appetite moves towards it. But that cake might not be good for this particular man. The only way to find out if it's good for this man is to see if it's reasonable. Maybe it's Ash Wednesday. The man's fasting. His appetite says, this is good. But what does his reason say? Not in this case. It's Ash Wednesday. Or he sees this piece of cake that belongs to somebody else. He says, this is good. But his reason says, not in this case. I'd have to steal it to eat it. Okay? Or perhaps he's got severe diabetes. That doesn't mean his appetite doesn't move towards it. But his reason says, this wouldn't be a good idea to eat this much uh, sugar. Okay? In each one of these cases, the cake is good in itself. The motion of the appetite is good in itself. But to follow through on the movement of that appetite and eat the cake would not be reasonable because he'd be fasting or the cake belongs to somebody else or is a severe diabetic. In each case, the cake would not be good for that particular man. Okay? No fire, but who cares? Where are we going with all this? Well, let's bring these things together. We started by talking about lemons and noticed that lemons can produce a response. And that's salvation. We see that this response demonstrates an important principle. An appetite is moved by the presence of its object. We saw that appetites or passions are powers. They're powers that produce a response to a sensed object. And at the most basic level, the responses are either this is good and it's a movement towards it, or this is bad and it's a movement away. We said our appetites will move before and without the direct influence of reason. But in order for us to act reasonably, which means in order for us to act like men and not like animals, we must apply reason to the movement of our appetites. Is it reasonable to eat this piece of cake? Now let's go back and pay closer attention to the lemons. Remember that an appetite is moved by the presence of its object. This object, a lemon, was made present by our ears. Now, if I were enough of a poet and talked long enough, and everybody here tasted lemon, I guarantee, over time, this would produce saliva. Lemons can be produced by the sense of hearing. What do we mean? They're made present. The image, the phantasm, from our memory and our imagination. They're made present by a sense of hearing. No one needed to see a lemon. No one needed to smell a lemon. No one need to taste a lemon right here and now. No one need to drink any lemonade right here and now. And that our appetite could move just by an image, huh? We could salivate in response to sounds. Okay. Now holding that thought, I'll ask everybody a question. Are we going to get over this? What do you mean, Father? Are we going to get over this? 
I'm asking at some stage, if we hear about lemons, when we smell lemons, when we taste lemons, when we remember lemons, when we sense lemons in any way, maybe we're actually tasting them, are we going to get over the salvation response? Is this movement, our appetite's going to go away? Are we going to quit drooling? Well, no, Father, of course not. It's an appetite. And you keep telling us that an appetite is moved by the presence of its object. So if our object, lemons, is right there present to our senses, we'll drool. Because like you say, an appetite is moved by the presence of an object. You're right. We're not going to get over it. An appetite is moved by its presence of its object. Okay, so what's your point? Our appetites are moved by the presence of an object, whether or not the object is presented to us by our memory, our imagination, our sight, our hearing, our touch, our smell, what have you. An appetite is moved by the presence of an object. We're not going to get over the movement of appetites. This has a lot of practical consequences for our happiness in this life and in the next. What are we saying? What are we saying? Think about what we've just seen in the, the example of the piece of cake. We've just seen that movements of our appetites can have moral consequences. Is it a sin in general to eat a piece of cake? Of course not. Would it be a sin to break the fast on Ash Wednesday to eat a piece of cake? Absolutely, a serious sin. Is it a sin to steal a piece of cake? Yes, a venial sin. If we don't govern the movements of our appetites with reason, it's possible to sin. If we govern with reason, we grow in virtue. If we don't, we grow in vice. But the strongest appetite or passion on a man doesn't have anything to do with cake or lemonade. And except in the case of married couples, it's completely forbidden by both the natural law and God's law in the sixth and ninth commandment Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's right. It is completely forbidden for everyone else on earth to deliberately allow this passion or this appetite to be provoked. Like all appetites, this appetite is moved by the presence of its object. Whether that object is presented to it by the memory or the imagination or sight or hearing or touch or what have you. Appetites are moved by the presence of objects. And we don't get over the movement of appetites, which means that we have to avoid the presence of the object in thought, word, and deed, with the exception of married couples for each other. We're commanded by the laws of nature and laws of God to be pure and modest. In order to do that, of course, we have to have a devotion to Our Lady. But back to this. Here are the rules. And we're not talking about spouses here. We'll just take the example of a thought, an image, an imagination, or a glance that stirs up lust, which is just another way of saying that this particular appetite has started to move, or it's a near occasion of stirring up that particular appetite, okay? In other words, it's a serious matter, it's forbidden. Now, if there's no intention to this glance, or this image of the imagination, no intention, it's accidental. And it's... They're going to be all, we're not going to be able to help seeing a lot of things. St. Francis de Sales points out that we can see many things. We can't help that, but we can help looking. Alright? In the society we live in, it's going to be impossible to move around without having this stuff presented to us. But we can quit looking at it. So, if there's no intention, and there's no consent, there's no sin. No intention, no consent, no sin. 
There's no intention of this image or glance, but perhaps some faint consent before the person realizes what's going on and then moves the mind, rejects it. That's what the moralists call semi-deliberate consent. That's a venial sin. If there's no intention of full consent, I know this is totally wrong, but all right, check that out. At that point, this is mortal sin. If there's a direct intention, I am going to pick up this bad book and look through it. That's a mortal sin. Okay? So no intention, no consent, no sin, no intention, some consent, venial sin, no intention, full consent, mortal sin, direct intention, mortal sin. Okay. Parents, this is really useful knowledge. It's useful for everybody, but for parents. Let's get practical. What's the problem with something like sex ed? An appetite is moved by the presence of its object. We're not going to get over the movements of the appetites. God forbids this outside of marriage, period, close the book. We don't expose children to these kind of things. It's a sin. What's the problem with suggestive music, suggestive words and songs? An appetite is moved by the presence of an object. If you can drool in response to hearing about lemons, God forbids this kind of thing outside of marriage, period, close the book. What's the problem with many modern dances? Same answer. What's the problem with even one bad scene in a TV show or a movie or a novel? Same answer. What's the problem with certain classes for engaged couples? Same answer. What's the problem with certain styles of clothing? Same answer. An appetite is moved by the presence of the object. If men are not going to get over their reaction to lemons, they're not going to get over this reaction. And it's far more powerful. You don't see them advertising convertibles with lemons in the front seat, okay? Or a glass of lemonade. It's some girl draped out. Okay, they're not going to get over it, ladies. That's not picking on you. It's a recognition of uh, the greatest possible natural good. The church doesn't have a double standard, one for men and one for women. The difference in the emphasis in the church are a result of the actual differences between men and women. And the church hasn't completely lost its mind in this category, unlike everybody else, seemingly, that wants to say everybody's the same and then freak out when they notice uh, that they're not. Father Sattler points out, because of the differences between the sexes, some difficulties are stronger in one sex than in the other, and so they have to be dealt with accordingly. Men typically have more difficulty with purity itself, with modesty of the eyes, and of touch. That's where they have to be more careful. For example, pornography, viewing pornography is by and large a male phenomenon. That's their problem. Men have to be careful what they look at, because an appetite is moved by the presence of its object. Women have to give more attention to the whole field of modesty, being careful not to be provocative, not to wear provocative dress, not to use provocative postures, being careful to be considerate of the weakness of others. This is where men are the weaker sex. Physically, men are stronger, but not in this. Women are far, far stronger than men in this department. Unbelievably stronger, okay? Now, if you deliberately, some woman deliberately provokes a man by her dress, her posture, provocativeness, not only is she guilty of offering scandal, she's guilty for as many sins as she's provoked. The men are responsible if they look. They don't get off the hook. But the woman's responsible if she advertises. 
A woman has to be modest in her dress and deportment. During the reign of Pius XI, the Holy See issued norms for modesty and dress. These are timeless standards for women's clothing, independent of particular fashion trends. These are absolute norms. The reason for these is to keep the objects from moving the appetites. Okay, here's the norms. It must not be cut deeper than two fingers' breadth under the pit of the throat. Coralink sleeves are tolerated. In other words, no sleeveless blouses or bare shoulders. Must reach beyond the knees. Transparent materials are improper. Note that these, rule, note that these rules are intended to prevent a woman from being an occasion of sin to the weaker sex. The absolute norms are designed to ensure the body is concealed according to the measure of right reason. Concealing the objects of desire, not revealing them. Modesty automatically forbids tight clothing. That's all immodest, but that's true for men too, okay? Uh, I'd note too, uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, certain types of slit skirts. What are they meant to do? Attract men's eyes to the legs. What for? Remember that an appetite is moved by the presence of its object. It's the same old story. There's a symmetry. One sex, typically, in the fallen state of man, I'm not talking about like our lady or people that are trying to be saints, but one, one sex is typically guilty of offering forbidden fruit. One sex is typically guilty for taking it. The difference between men and women come out about even in terms of sin. The bottom line is that Christ our Lord calls all Catholic men and all Catholic women to have a sense of responsibility for each other. To have a sense of responsibility and charity and thoughtfulness about the effects of their dress and deportment, behavior, speech, all these things. To think that way about the other person. Would I be doing anything to deliberately put this person in occasion of sin? And to show that by how we act. Christ expects us to love one another. And those aren't just words. It's a question of thoughtfulness. It may sound like rules. Well, there's rules, but the rules are here to see what it is. Because of the fall of men, it's not immediately obvious the fault of each sex and the weakness of each sex. So the church is here not to yell at you, but to say, here's how it is. This is reality. Look out for each other so that we can get to heaven. So they're not helping each other go someplace else. We don't want to go to plan B. Okay? An appetite is moved by the presence of its object. Whether the object is presented by memory or imagination, sight or hearing or touch or what have you. The weather is going to start getting warmer soon. And that means a lot of appetites will be moved because a lot of objects are going to be sensually present that shouldn't be. Don't be looking and don't be advertising. Keep in mind that when you go to your judgment, you won't be able to see or you won't be able to say, I didn't know. No one ever told me. At the very least... You remember this every time you have a glass of lemonade.